uh, I have a particular case I remember where this woman in the city of uh, La Plata was pretty much the only remaining mother in that city or in that group. And she literally told me that I reminded her a lot of her son and she started to cry. November 30th, 1976. Nestor Viaflor and his girlfriend Raquel go missing. As Usina Viaflor will never see her son again. A year later, Azucena's search for answers will lead to her abduction at gunpoint from her home in Buenos Aires. But the fight for answers is already underway in the Argentinian capital. This is the story about a group of mothers and their enduring campaign in the name of Argentina's stolen generation. I'm Lucy Knowles, and you're listening to Orders in Decay. The Argentinian Dirty War of 1976 was a military dictatorship that lasted seven years. Under the dictatorship, democracy was suspended, political parties were banned, and rights were restricted. During this time, around 30,000 people were disappeared by the state. These people were mainly leftists, those seen as being unsympathetic to the dictatorship. Many were young adults and university students. Rumours spread as to the fate of the disappeared, with many of the desaparecidos ending up in detention centres, where they were tortured and murdered before being flung from airplanes into the sea. When Nesta Viaflor went missing in 1976, his mother, Azucena, began to search for answers as to his whereabouts. During her search, she met other women who were also looking for their missing children, and grandmothers, whose pregnant daughters had been taken, and whose grandchildren were also missing. These mothers did not know each other, but by accident, uh, they start meeting as they were going in and out of hospitals, police stations, or other places. And they began talking to each other, even though this was extremely dangerous for them at the time. I spoke to Professor Fernando Bosco of San Diego State University, who grew up during the dictatorship, on his research into and meetings with the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo. Out of that desperation of trying to find their missing sons and daughters, a group of them uh, who have met through you know, by chance, through these visits to hospitals and police stations, thought that they could get a group together and deliver a petition right to the main government house uh, in uh, Buenos Aires to the military junta to ask for uh, information uh, about their missing sons and daughters. The following year, 14 of the mothers were kidnapped. Azucena was among them. But the mothers' campaign did not end there. Despite the huge risk posed to those who took part in the protests, the movement continued to grow. 
the mothers decided uh, that they would begin going to the squares at exactly the same date and time every week. And so what you can see, uh, it became a little bit of a complicated narrative for the military government when you have many small groups of women all of a sudden on Thursdays at 3 p.m. popping up uh, in public squares across the country with images of their missing sons and daughters. And so that kind of that image became uh, powerful. The movement soon became widespread across Argentina. White headscarves representing the diapers once used by their disappeared children quickly became a striking symbol of the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo. Eventually, the movement began to garner international support and influence. In 1978, Argentina hosted the Football World Cup, and with journalists from all over the world covering the games, a media spotlight was shone on the nation. It was the moving words of Marta Moreira de Alcanada Aramburu, one of the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo, that would make headlines. Speaking to a Dutch journalist in the Plaza, Marta pleaded. We just want to know where our children are. Alive or dead, we want to know where they are. We don't know who to turn to anymore. Consulates, embassies, ministries, churches, they've all shut their doors on us. That's why we're begging you to help us. You are our last hope. Please, help us. By 1979, the mothers met with the director of the UN Division of Human Rights and the UN's Working Group on Enforced and Involuntary Disappearances was established in 1980. So, how did a group of mothers turned activists create such a powerful social movement? Emotions played a huge role uh, because the fear, uh, the sadness of losing their sons and daughters, uh, the crying together, uh, all these things were basically uh, uh, emotions that helped women form a bond. And so it solidified the identity of the movement and the movement as a community of mothers. Uh, they couldn't talk to anyone else, but they could talk to each other. So you can think about it as almost as a support group. It was a social movement that was emerging, but it was also therapeutical for the mothers themselves to be able to find some other mother who was going through the same drama. And so uh, emotions were, uh, like I said, something that helped them remain united. The role of emotion in social movements has traditionally been viewed with suspicion. Emotion was often seen in a negative light, as something that denoted irrationality and contagion, and a loss of individuality and control. But the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo shed a new light on the important role of emotion in social movements, as a binding force. Without the shared grief of losing their children, these mothers are unlikely to have created a social movement with such strong geographical and temporal reach. As the movement continued throughout the decades, many of the mothers died. Today, in many parts of Argentina, there is only a small scattering of mothers remaining. 
In some cities, there are as few as one or two. And yet, these mothers talk of feeling strongly connected, both to the mothers that continue to march in other cities across the country and to those mothers that came before them. Uh, I have a particular case I remember where this woman in the city of uh, La Plata was pretty much the only remaining mother in that city or in that group. And she literally told me that I reminded her a lot of her son and she started to cry. And that was something that I, I was completely unprepared for. And so obviously I started to cry with her and we ended up uh, hugging and, and, and it, it just made the connection much more personal than I ever, ever anticipated. But it also allowed me to have more open conversations about uh, uh, mental health uh, that they have been issues that they have gone through uh, throughout all this uh, uh, ordeal. And I had originally not made the topic of emotions part of my dissertation project. It was something that emerged during my research because of these unexpected interactions with the mothers. So uh, it completely changed the direction of my research. For these mothers, the protests provided them with purpose after such a tragic loss. The deaths of their children were not for nothing. They were part of a greater fight for human rights in Argentina. So, negative emotions such as grief and loss, but also positive emotions such as a sense of commonality and purpose, gave this movement strength. Female-led social movements tend to be norm-defying. At the same time as the mothers were protesting in Argentina, the women's liberation movement was taking hold, particularly in the US, seeking equal rights and opportunities for women. But the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo, despite being a female-led social movement, are not so easily categorised as a feminist movement. The mothers uh, did take advantage very cleverly of traditional patriarchal gender norms that are prevalent in Latin America and that were much more prevalent in the 70s than they are today. And they took advantage of the image of the mother as someone who is nurturing, uh, someone who would protect their sons and daughters. Uh, they embraced that identity but they also went out into the streets, outside the what is considered to be uh, a place of women, which would be the home. And so they, using the, the, the identity of mothers, they flipped the script because they performed their motherhood, but in the streets. And so that in itself was... Uh, I think a little bit radical at the time. Within Latin America's conservative society, where the woman's place is quite subordinate, these mothers were not, like feminists, rejecting the traditional roles and gendered attributes assigned to them by society. Instead, they repurposed these roles 
to give them political strength. Not only did these mothers use their emotional intelligence to their advantage to strengthen the movement, they also politicised their role as mothers. In this way, they were both embracing and redefining female stereotypes. The mothers had been assigned gendered roles by the state, and now the state was trying to take these roles away from them. All they had left to do now was fight. At the same time, they didn't break any mould because they performed very much as mothers. And, um, and they drew almost on not just uh, these patriarchal gender norms, but also on something that in Latin America is called uh, Marianismo, which is the idea of basing your life as a mother on the image of the Virgin Mary for a very Catholic country. They used that to their advantage because they thought they could challenge the military because who would hurt in public a crying mother? And so they used these gender roles as a weapon uh, against the police or the military who would come to attack them. The mothers no longer tend to publicly cry when protesting. As the years went on, they transitioned from being biological mothers to political mothers and experienced activists. Otherwise, their protests would remain largely the same for the next 40-odd years. They would still gather in squares across the country every Thursday at 3.30pm, wearing white headscarves embroidered with the names and dates of birth of their missing children, clutching at grainy photos of their offspring. In 1984, Argentina's dirty war ended with economic collapse and growing public resentment. But the mothers continued to protest. 2017 marked 40 years of protests. But this tale is not simply one of loss and grief. Whilst it soon became clear that the mother's missing children would not be found alive, many of the mothers were also missing grandchildren. The Junta would kidnap pregnant women and, once born, would take the babies and give them to families sympathetic to the military regime. It is estimated that around 500 babies were kidnapped and adopted by military families during the dictatorship. This meant that the abuelas of the Plaza de Mayo still had hope of finding their grandchildren alive. In 1987, the grandmothers secured the establishment of the National Genetic Data Bank for Relatives of Disappeared Children. And, in 1992, the National Commission for the Right of Identity was set up to help those questioning the nature of their adoptions. By 2009, 100 grandchildren had been found. In 2014, after 36 years of hunting, Estela de Colotto, the president of the Association of the Grandmothers of the Plaza de Mayo, found her own grandson, Ignacio. He was the 114th stolen child found by the association. As of June 2019, 130 grandchildren had been found. The mothers and grandmothers of the Plaza de Mayo will go down in history as determined activists, relentlessly fighting for answers, for recognition and for justice. Their protesting has shone a light on the abuses of Argentina's military dictatorship 
and paved the way for reforming Argentina's human rights and influencing international policy. But, ultimately, they are a group of mothers, united in grief and in hope, searching for their children and grandchildren. <laughs>